Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast, a fortnightly update from the world of metabolic medicine. I'm your host, James Nurse. In every episode, we speak to authors from the journal about their work, providing an update for clinicians working in the field and also working to increase the accessibility of IMD research. In episode 28, we're discussing a disorder that can present at any time from the first days of life to well into old age, and it is as relevant to metabolic physicians as it is to pediatricians, emergency doctors, generalists, neurologists, gastroenterologists, and even psychiatrists. So stick around to find out why everyone needs to know about urea cycle disorders. Hello, in, in this episode, we're covering a topic that we've really only managed to touch upon over the last year, but it's a, a big topic within the world of inherited metabolic disease. And we've two new papers and one slightly older paper, but also a very highly cited and very highly read paper to speak about. This morning, I'm very pleased to welcome three guests from across the world, and they are Associate Professor Jun Kido, Assistant Professor Johannes Habale, and Associate Professor and soon to be full Professor Fanny Michelle. Jun, Fanny and Johannes, thank you all for joining me this morning. Thank you. You're most welcome. Hello. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Yanis, I wonder if we could start with you. This is podcast isn't just listened to by IMD clinicians. We often attract generalists and um, patients and parents as well. Are you able to briefly explain your ear cycle disorders and why it's so important that all doctors are aware of them? Okay. So your ear cycle disorders are a group of genetic conditions in which the removal or the detoxification of ammonia is affected because ammonia is a toxic metabolite and it is toxic mainly to the brain. So ammonia is a small compound that is derived from protein catabolism or protein degradation, basically from food. And if that ammonia is kept at the normal concentrations in our blood, it is not neurotoxic. But if it increases and exceeds certain concentrations in our blood and then also in cerebrospinal fluid. It affects the brain and it causes brain edema. And within a very short time, it becomes irreversible. So this is why this podcast can be very useful to highlight the importance of early recognitions of those conditions in which the detoxification of ammonia is affected. And this also explains why it is important because the urea cycle disorders as a group are still rare conditions. We talk here about a global incidence in the order of one in 35,000, according to recent literature. It varies between different countries, but it is clear that urea cycle disorders are rare conditions of which about half of the patients present as neonates and are then affected by a high mortality and those that survive neonatal brain edema often have severe complications. And then the other half of the patients, they are adults or adolescents, and basically they can manifest at any time. And as well, they are affected by high mortality. So I think it is important that all doctors are aware of them. It's not just the neonatologists, it's not just the metabolic physicians, but really it is a large group of healthcare professionals that may encounter a patient with a urea cycle defect. And the early detection of those patients is key to improved prognosis of the patients. 
So obviously, with our understanding of these rare diseases, it's really useful to look at large cohorts. Um, Jun, congratulations on your paper, 229 patients in rare diseases, really an incredibly large number. And it's 50 more patients than you enrolled in a similar piece of work from a decade earlier. Does the increase in numbers reflect better recruitment or better outcomes or a bit of both? Yes. Actually, my institutions and clinicians cooperated with this nationwide study. Owing to their efforts, the number of UCD's patients enrolled in this study increased. This reflects that there are now more clinicians with an interest in and knowledge of UCD's than at the previous study. Moreover, the eagerness for UCD's has led to improved survival outcome in patients with UCD's. And I wonder if you could summarize the key findings from your paper. 229 patients were enrolled in this study. Just over half had origin transcarbaminase deficiency and 33CP3D, 48ASSD, 14ASLD, and 8ARGD. They were diagnosed on the basis of clinical manifestations, family history, enzyme activity, metabolite analysis and or DNA. This study demonstrated that more patients can recover from a severe hemodynamia attack in the neonatal period with medication continuous hemodialysis or hemodiafiltration. But severe hyperamnemia, more than 316 micromolar, lead to significant damage to the brain. Even with medication and hemodiafiltration, commenced that at the beginning of the episode. And, and that level of 360 microvolts per litre is in line with your work from 10 years earlier. It, it doesn't seem like much when you consider how quickly these scenarios can unravel. When it comes to neurodevelopment, what degree of impairment are you seeing? And is it, is it proportionate to the ammonia level? The impaired intelligence of UCD patients is defined as an intelligence quotient less than 70 in this study. The first hyperammonemic attack may have the most adverse impact on the brain because levels of blood ammonia are often the highest ever and the duration of hyperammonemia may be the longest compared to subsequent episodes. Therefore, we investigated the correlation between blood ammonia levels at the onset time and decent neurodevelopmental outcome in the UCD patients. Unfortunately, we could not investigate the duration of hyperammonemia at the onset, nor the effect of hyperammonemia other than the first attack in this study. We could not evaluate the degree of impaired intelligence in all patients. This is a challenge for future projects. However, in patients with blood ammonia levels more than 600 micromolar at the onset, degree of impairment is likely to be proportional to the ammonia level. Yes, and I want also to underline and highlight one of the key findings of their paper and what really makes this important for, for the field. I think they, in a very rigorous way, identified a much lower threshold that we should 
acknowledge as relevant for the neurological outcome. It has been practiced in many of our centers to first start treating patients affected by an acute hyperaminemia by what we call conservative treatment, medical treatment, infusions, and some medications. And then if that fails to add extracorporeal detoxification of ammonia by means of hemodialysis or hemodiofiltration, etc. But what Yun and his colleagues were showing is that we should change this practice in order to improve the outcome of patients. We should start the extracorporeal detoxification much earlier because already at levels exceeding 360 micromoles per liter, the neurological outcome of patients is much worse than we would like it to be. And I think that is the importance of this specific paper. And obviously, given these figures, clearly making the diagnosis is key. We're always trying to encourage colleagues to think metabolic and send the ammonia. Within the guidelines paper, the first question you ask is how can UCD patients be identified reliably and early? We need clinical teams to send the right tests off. Is, is that message getting through? Are there more unusual presentations also that need to be highlighted? Well, that's two, that's two questions. I think the message is not getting through clear enough. I think personally that ammonia should be measured much earlier in patients, neonatal patients, et cetera, than it is currently done. And for your second question on the unusual presentations, we learn that there are many more unusual presentations, patients at different ages, patients that present with purely gastrointestinal problems, neurological problems that are less typical um, psychiatric presentations. So yes, there are unusual presentations and we need to be aware of those and we need to inform our colleagues from neurology, from gastroenterology, from psychiatry and other fields about these unusual presentations. Because in the end, if there's no early identification of the patient, the treatment cannot start. And as you just said, treatment should start before ammonia levels are exceeding 360 micromoles per liter. And Fanny, this seems like a good time to come across to your paper, because I think there is this perception that these disorders are childhood conditions. But obviously, you were looking at a French cohort of adult onset UCD patients. I know that in Yun's case, there were 103 late onset patients, but that simply means any case presenting after 28 days. Uh, your group was very different, I think. Yes, absolutely, James. And uh, I would like, of course, to highlight the work of, of the first author, Sigolène Zouquet, who is a specialist in internal medicine in Reims, who put together all this work from 12 centers. We included, indeed, 71 patients, but really the criteria was an onset after 16 years of age, which, to our knowledge, has not been done. And so, really, the, the focus was on late, meaning adult onset in this population. And I think your, your oldest patient was 86. Is, is that right? The range was indeed from 16 to 86. And the population was actually mainly of two kinds. We had patients presenting with an acute decompensation in uh, basically almost half of them. And the other half were mainly patients diagnosed after uh, genetic uh, screening based on another index case in the family. But most of them, which is interesting, uh, 68% were female. Really, the, the key message is, first of all, as Ioannis outlined, that this triad of neurological, psychiatric, and gastrointestinal symptoms should really prompt to look for, for this diagnosis. And really, a message that we and others have, have conveyed over years now is definitely in any unexplained encephalopathy, 
you should have the same reflex of measuring ammonia as you have to basically run a lumbar puncture because, of course, the main difficulty that we have in adult metabolic medicine is that internal medicine specialists and, and neurologists and psychiatrists are not aware of this rare condition. So it's, it's much more difficult to rare awareness than we have in the pediatric field. So really, this unexplained encephalopathy should be, no matter what, a reason for measuring ammonia. Also very important in families diagnosed with OTC to make sure that you do not miss investigation, especially of female, because 80% of patients in this cohort add a triggering factor, especially pregnancy, of course, for women, but also change in protein intake that actually led to this very serious decompensation. Overall, the death rate was of 10%, which is really high. So these disorders, and we still see it, are underdiagnosed, are unknown for most adult specialists, and really the outcome can be extremely damaging because outside of death, many of them had also sickles from this acute decompensation, and it's actually almost half of the cohort here. Do you think your perspective is different? Because I understand you're a paediatric neurologist by background who's sort of grown up to be an adult metabolic specialist. Yeah, pediatric uh, geneticist by training and did move to the field of adult metabolic medicine and neurometabolism in particular. So it's been really interesting to see the differences indeed in awareness, but also differences in presentations, especially in the field of adult metabolic medicine. Hyperammonia is mostly associated to people's mind with a liver disease related mainly to alcohol. So really to pass on the messages on when to consider a different differential diagnosis to just cirrhosis or, or, or basically disorders related to excessive alcohol consumption is, is, has been the main challenge. And also it's been interesting to see the differences in clinical presentations because a lot of these patients have especially psychiatric, uh, long-term psychiatric symptoms that are completely underdiagnosed and that unfortunately do not catch attention. And those, those psychiatric patients that you mentioned, is there anything from the history that, that clues us in or should be looking at ammonia in psychiatric presentations? Well, we may find that the kind of self-restrict protein, actually, they may also have recurrent episode of nausea or vomiting. Sometimes they may have also mild cognitive difficulties and that can be actually from an early age. So anything a bit typical in their cognitive history, in their gastrointestinal, especially that nausea, vomiting, uh, we're not talking constipation here, and uh, self-restriction actually, which is not so uh, rare in, in this patient of, uh, in protein intake. This should be additional triggers. And, and like Yun, did you get a sense of an ammonia level at which outcomes will be poorer or do adults seem to tolerate hyperammonemia better? No, they certainly do not. And in, in this paper, of course, it's a retrospective work. Uh, unfortunately, we have a lot of missing values. And as I mentioned, ammonia is quite less measured in the adult field. So we cannot really draw the same conclusion than you could on, on a threshold. Uh, but for sure, the patient who had the poorest outcomes were the ones uh, with the highest level of ammonia. And we consider that above 200 micromole, well, we should consider accepting in some cases, but really we should go ahead with emo uh, filtration or hemodialysis for sure. I suppose when we're talking about management, it brings us back to Johannes's guideline, especially the management of the acute presentation. W within the guideline, and I say it's, it's highly read, it's, con it's consistently well cited. You've included a fantastic sort of clear outline for the treatment of hyperammonemia uh, and the neonate at risk of UCD. 
Lots of clinicians may feel that they have a good understanding around these areas already, but are there some common pitfalls or um, surprises that seem to catch people out? Yes, I think there are some common pitfalls, and we mentioned some of those. Number one, urea cycle disorders are rare. So very understandable clinicians think first of the more common conditions when they are faced with a very sick newborn or adolescent or adult patient. And I think it's right that they think of the more common conditions, but they should include the rare condition of a metabolic intoxication in their differential diagnosis, not only after 24 hours or 48 hours of failure of standard treatment, but much earlier. So that's number one. Consider the rare exceptional causes of encephalopathy much earlier than it's presently done. A second pitfall is that we are relying too much on the conservative treatments and we are starting the extracorporeal detoxification often too late. And this then is related to the poor outcome that is still of main concern. And another point which I consider as a pitfall is uh, something that we have not yet discussed and that's the fact that patients need to be transferred earlier to centers in which extracorporeal detoxification hemodialysis can be provided. And since patients are so rare, colleagues should consider transfer of a patient to a specialized center earlier than it is done. And as far as a surprise is concerned, maybe it's not really a surprise, but I found it very interesting to see over the years the high proportion of the late cases of the unusual presentations that do not fit into the principal concept of the urea cycle disorders. So we should all be very aware of those unusual cases. And this, I think, hopefully adds to an improved outcome. And you've talked about sort of the management there and something that that comes up is the role of liver transplant in these children. Jun, in your paper, you report on the outcome of 76 patients who've received a liver transplant. Um, Within the guideline, it's concluded that this should be offered in severe UCD. I know you've got some expertise in this area. What was your experience? Yes, we have already reported a previous study about liver transplants in UCDs in Japan. Based on this previous report and my experience, UCD patients with blood ammonia levels more than 360 micromolar at the onset time should undergo liver transplant to prevent frequently recurrent hyperammonemia attack and achieve better quality of life because these are severe cases. Infants presenting in the neonatal period are by definition severe, and therefore patients with neonatal onset UCD should undergo liver transplant, regardless of blood armor levels. If patients with neonatal onset UCDs achieve good early control and afford and transplant with blood ammonia levels never rising above, 360 micromolar. They may have a better quality of life with better IQ outcomes. Moreover, patients with family history of severe UCDs or patients with a pathological variant associated with a severe phenotype should undergo liver transplant before presenting with a severe hyperammonemic attack, respective of blood ammonia levels because it will lead to a significantly improved quality of life. 
And I spoke with Dr. Monique Williams about the European transplant experience for the journal earlier this year. And she happened to mention that living related uh, donors are used in Japan more commonly than than in Europe. Have you noticed um, an impact if the donor is a carrier for the condition? Yes. Living donor liver transplant from heterozygous RTCD carrier donors in the patient's family is a matter of concern because some recipients have developed hyperammonemia after receiving a transplant from a heterozygous RTCD carrier donor. Therefore, transplant from asymptomatic RTCD heterozygous donors should be avoided or only performed after careful examination and if no suitable donor candidate is available. And Fanny, within your cohort of patients, was transplant a consideration? Uh, no, uh, for, for most patients, uh, definitely it was not, especially because the few who died during this acute decompensation was really because of really high levels of picomonia and, and really late diagnosis. So it was not a consideration. And also the retrospective cohort uh, did not capture uh, if that was ever discussed for, for a patient. So we also may miss a few information from uh, participating centers on that regard. Also, for most other patients, there were milder forms, of course, so it was not considered in in the long run for these patients. Interestingly, there was one patient, uh, actually a patient of mine, that we published in the Journal of Hepatology in 2017, uh, for which uh, transplant was considered an emergency because the patient presented with an acute liver failure and it was a misdiagnosis initially. So it was only when the diagnosis of UCD was suspected that actually the, the patient was taken off the list for transplant because obviously uh, this was not a right indication and she recovered very quickly after simple medical management. And Yun and Fanny, there's an increasing emphasis on adult inherited metabolic diseases. In fact, we've just published a special virtual issue around the subject. And in the last podcast, I spoke to Robin Lackman, who was telling me that we're perhaps not making the progress we want to in, in training up specialists in this field. And a big challenge of UCD in adults is pregnancy. Were you able to capture any data around pregnancy? Yes. Some patients developed the first hyperammonemic attack after delivery having remained well throughout pregnancy without medication or protein restriction. On the other hand, a female patient with CPHD developed their first hyperammonemia attack at the age of 59 years and then had a frequent hyperammonemia attack after then, despite having given birth to two children without any report complications. If patients develop hyperammonemia attack following delivery, these episodes can be difficult to control. Due to metabolic change in the bodies during perperium, it can take a long time to stabilize the ammonia level in this situation. Fanny, I'm sure that something came up in your paper about pregnancy and late presentation. Yes, among the the ones with acute uh, decompensations, about half of the cohort, indeed, um, there were triggering factors in 80% of the cases and among a third of those were actually pregnancy or postpartum. So it was also an important aspect of this acute forms. I don't know within the guideline, there's any specific uh, advice around how to to manage these patients or is there still not enough experience to to sort of know what to say to mums in in this period? If I may say... I guess from our experience, really, when the diagnosis is known, then management of pregnancy is actually usually quite okay because we adjust 
uh, of course, the intake uh, all over pregnancy, we can follow uh, ammonia levels and we can prepare just the delivery and the postpartum. Really, the issue came when the disease was unknown and that pregnancy or postpartum was the revealing factor. Uh, that was really the majority of our experience. And have they got fixed protein tolerance in pregnancy? Because I know one of the, the curiosities of phenylketonuria in pregnancy is maternal uh, feed tolerance increases. Maybe I can I can answer on that. I think it's as Fanny was saying, it's two problems basically. It is during the the pregnancy, and but also the postpartum period. In postpartum period, we know of several patients that had a severe decompensation, sometimes the first decompensation ever, and unfortunately, in some patients this was fatal. During pregnancy, patients need to be followed very carefully because the protein tolerance and also the needs for energy and protein are changing during pregnancy. It is not the same as in phenocatenuria, but the patients with the urea cycle defect during pregnancy need a very careful monitoring by a specialist team, including and foremost the dietitians. And, and that monitoring, are you, they have it to come into hospital? If you, because obviously with PKU, you can post in your blood spots. How, uh, how do you handle the monitoring and how frequent is ammonia monitoring in pregnancy? But it will really depend, of course, of every patient history and, and previous control. But yes, they do have to come because ammonia is a very uh, fragile uh, measurement. And so it has to follow a, a really standardized procedure and can only be done in hospitals. But uh, usually, of course, there is follow up, you know, for the dietitians over the phone. Uh, but for measurements, we at least see them every trimester in cases where things are fine. It may be more if, if there are issues, but it can be just uh, every three months type of, of follow up. And I think that's also an important message that a female with a urea cycle defect still can get through pregnancy and the postpartum period as long as the entire team is closely involved and the patient is monitored during pregnancy and the postpartum period. And there are several patients or several children, I should say, from women affected by urea cycle defects that are born healthy. So obviously the biochemical situation during pregnancy for an unaffected child is in favor of a normal neurological outcome. Thank you for that. So finally for Johannes, because you wrote that guideline, but also for Jun and, and Fanny too, because I know that UCD is a huge part of your work. Uh, and experimental treatments were included at the end of the guideline paper. Uh, obviously, they didn't fall within the recommendations, but are we likely to see any of these uh, coming to the fore and being included as recommendations in the in the next revision? Yeah, despite better treatments such as hemodialysis and liver transplantation being used more over the last decade, the new developmental outcome of patients with neonatal onset UCDs with severe hyperammonemia more than 360 micromolar at the time of presentation has been little changed by current treatments. Therefore, in the future, new medication which can prevent the neuron death during or after severe hyperammonemia, such as a mitochondrial rescue drug is required. I would love to include new treatments in the second revision. And maybe some of the items that we discussed in the section on experimental therapies will be included as recommendations. I think there are currently already few medical innovations 
Some of them are new formulations of drugs, so that's not really an innovation, but still should improve compliance of a patient and should lower the burden of disease and the burden of management. But as Yun was saying, we need new treatments, we need new approaches, and mitochondria rescue drugs are certainly one, but there are other that are at the experimental stage. I would hope, though, that those novel approaches will soon come into clinical practice. It's the case already, for instance, for one of the rare ureocycle defects. There's enzyme replacement therapy now for arginase deficiency. There are clinical trials underway. And also underway, and I think that's a field of much hope, is the field of gene therapy. And there is one clinical trial for OTC deficiency uh, gene therapy, gene addition. But I would hope that with the new developments in the field, in, gene, in the gene therapy field, mainly that are correcting the defect, so gene editing instead of gene addition uh, will be the future. Now, they are currently done only in animals, but I would hope that soon they come into clinical trials. But overall, we need new therapies, and I would be very happy to include those in future guidelines. Brilliant. Thank you. So obviously the, the big takeaway for, for listening is please send the ammonia um, and, and make sure you consider this diagnosis at, at any age, really, because it, it can present at any time when the consequences even in adulthood can be can be very severe. Is that fair to say? Well, especially I would say in the adult metabolic medicine, yes, please just just do it at least once. If it's normal, then you can move on to something else. It should be a first line investigation in any emergency room. And of course, any patient uh, who presents with some kind of acute decompensation of, of any kind, I would say. And I agree to that. Just do it once. If it's normal, you can forget about it for a while, but you should do it once. And it will increase the numbers of ammonia determinations, but it's the only chance to detect patients earlier. And it always comes back to the paper that Jun was publishing. Only if patients are detected early, only if treatment starts before ammonia levels are exceeding the 360 or higher levels, only then the patient has a reasonable prognosis. Perfect. Well, uh, thank you all three for your time. I'm exceptionally grateful we were able to get you all together across multiple continents for this podcast recording. Thank you very much, James. Thank you, Johannes. Thank you, June. Thank you, James, Johannes, Fanny, Sensei. Thank you, James, and thank you, June, and th thank you, Fanny. Now, if you want to read these papers, please go to the journal website and search for urea cycle disorder adult onset or Japanese cohort, and you'll find Johannes's paper in both our most accessed and also our most cited sections on the website. And if you'd like to listen to more from the journal, then search for JIMD Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.